Welcome everybody to this episode of the Emerging Box podcast. I have a super special guest today and his name is Gary McPherson. Gary and I met last year, you know, at the height of one of the most interesting years of our lives and our mutual love for Lamborghinis and books and life in general is what brought us together. I also found out later that he's a pilot, so this is pretty cool, but... What I really want you guys to learn about Gary is, you know, the interesting story that made him who he is. So, Gary, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. And let me just clarify very quickly. Trainee pilot. All right. So, we just don't want to be, you don't want to be handing me the stick just yet. It gets a little bit exciting up there. Trust me. Either way, way, a top gun in many fields, you know. I have so much respect for you know, who you are as a human being. And this is exactly what I want people to learn about you. So I would actually love to hear who you are at heart, you know, and how you came to be Gary McPherson. Ah, okay. So that's a 51-year story in the making. And there's probably another 50 years to go before I'm fully evolved. But um, background-wise, just, um, gee, uh, middle child, son of a working class couple, born and bred in a suburb that was originally semi-industrial in uh, Victoria. Brunswick was the suburb. Um, back in the day, it was a rough part of town. It wasn't the roughest part of town, but you didn't go out after dark unless you knew somebody. Uh, but, you know, that was, you know, probably everybody's upbringing. Um, when I say everybody's upbringing, it's probably very standard across the line. I have great parents. I had a a loving home. I was uh, nurtured and raised brilliantly. Um, I'm just a little bit of a, or I was growing up, just a little bit of a wild child, though, I suppose. Um, Maybe that's why we connect. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Probably. In fact, it's not a probably, it's an exactly. So... um, I'm the sort of guy or the sort of person that when I'm told something can't be done or shouldn't be done or is a little bit too risky, it kind of sets off a, a couple of neural triggers that uh, bypass all logic and reason. And I tend to you know, go for it and have a shot and see what happens. So, <clears throat> you know, I did, I did all the schooling that I'm supposed to do. I went to the VCE and I didn't, and I'm showing my age now, it was HSC almost when I did it. Um, I didn't go to uni. I didn't see the sense in it. I just wanted to get into the workforce and work. Uh, so I kind of blew the last two years of school away without doing the work that I should have done. Um, give you an example. Well, I, I did uh, I did and passed the, the HSC VCA and I did it on 30 minutes study per subject in the library prior to each exam. So where most of the kids were going you know, two and three hours a night and uh, I, I kind of just fluffed the entire year. And then 30 minutes before each exam, I sat in the library and did a quick cram session, managed to get the BSC average across the board. So I probably might've been able to do better, but didn't care. Just wanted to get out, wanted to work, wanted to live. Um, so got really hands-on for a start. You know, I, I liked cars, so I, I got a job as a, a spray painter and. I had no spray painting experience. I had no skill. I had no education. I just rocked up and said, hey, I can paint. And learned very, very quickly that I couldn't and then learned very, very quickly how to do it. And uh, <laughs> it kind of served its purpose. Um, I did that for, 
probably eight months, seven or eight months. And it was just hot and sweaty and, and yucky work. Um, yeah, what I love about that it was just what you just, crap. is what you just shared about I learned very quickly that I couldn't. You know, a lot of people, um, you know, take that as, oh, my God, I made a mistake. But it was actually, you know, the whole process of who am I not before you find the who, am, who I am um, journey. And also I really relate to what you said about school. You know, as much as I loved studying, it just wasn't an interest to me to sit there for hours and hours. And I was one of those lucky people that was able to, I guess, fluke it and still did quite well in school. Yeah myself you and I might have been in medicine school but probably wouldn't um you know have <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> I always I, I always wanted to be a fighter pilot I saw the whole top gun thing you know I could see me doing the walk down the need for speed the high five playing volleyball you know how it is um but no <laughs> uh, I studied I studied pure and applied maths and chemistry and physics and, and um, bio and for the first Half a year, iced them. I mean, literally iced them. They were just easy. And then I got distracted and I, I really want to be at school. So I stopped doing any of the work. And you can't do those as a mandatory minimum. So by the end of year 11, I decided that I wasn't going to be a Top Gun fighter pilot. I was just going to get through school. So I switched over to psych and legal and you know, some of the, and look, the, actually things that have served me quite well for these, you don't know. Um, what's coming steve jobs probably says it best if anybody's ever heard the speech where he says you can connect the dots looking back you can't connect them looking forward uh, i had i had no idea that psychology and legal was going to serve me in the future but it did dramatically um yeah. it serves me today i totally agree the fundamentals in legal studies and psych are kind of what you know led me into the passions and the things that i'm doing now at the moment so you know, it, I love that you highlighted that because there's a lot of people even in VC at the moment who might be listening or thinking like, you know, what is the right path? How do I get to be as successful as somebody like, you know, that I look up to? Maybe it's you, maybe it's um, someone like Steve Jobs. Like, you know, how do you navigate yourself to find something that you truly are passionate about? You know, how did you find that path for yourself? There is no path. There's no path other than the one you make for yourself. So if you're sitting in school now and you're thinking to yourself, um, I need to know what the next 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 years of my life look like, I'm going to map them out. Here we go. Um, <clears throat> I can simply say this to you. In life, you will make a plan. You will execute a plan. The plan will fail dramatically and then you'll work your way along based on what you pick up. Right? So if you anticipate that you're going to map 25 years of your life out and it's going to work, uh, it won't. Right? So if there's a skill that you can pick up, it's not planning, it's adaptability. Right? So expect that what you plan will shift and work with it and just use the skills that you've got. Now, the reason I say that is because I didn't have our plan. I left school and wanted to earn cash. I went and became a spray painter. I painted for a few, a few months or nine months, whatever it was. I got okay at it. You know, I've done a number of cars and stuff since. I've done resto work on, car, on my own cars and bikes. And so I'm pretty hands-on with that sort of stuff. But I got to a point where I didn't want to be killing myself. So I decided that I'd become a salesman because salesmen, and don't laugh when I say this, salesmen got company cars. 
Well, so I get to I get to get a car, and somebody else is going. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to pay petrol and insurance, and I could go cruising. And you know, well, I had it all planned out. So I got a telephone sales job that meant that I had to sell first to qualify sales first. So then they put me on the road. Give you an idea of where it started. So we talk about life being tough, right? And some people say, tell, like I hear people say today that their jobs are hard and you know, they're working 12-hour days and you know, the stress. So my first sales job was in an office that had one window. And the window was in, no, no, the window was into the sales manager's office. So we had no external light, nothing but fluoros. There were eight desks, eight men, and by men, I mean guys in the, between the ages of 18 and 22, sat at these desks. We had no females in this office. We had seven of the eight boys uh, smokers, and it was back in the day where you could smoke inside the office. Wow. So I used to work between 7.30 in the morning and 5, and five o'clock at night in a fluoro-lit, non-natural environment covered in a haze of blue smoke. And I was one of the smokers, I'll tell you straight up. Right? Our job was to cold call people to get them to buy a thing called a franking machine. Now, for those of you that don't know what a franking machine is, back in the day, instead of buying 100,000 stamps, yeah, right, you get a franking machine, you put some cash on it, and you put letters to it, and it'd stamp it for you. Right? So that was my aim, was to sell a franking machine a week. And if I sold one a week, I would get promoted to an on-the-road sales rep. But I had to sell one a week for a month. So to sell four in a month. Otherwise, no promotion. So it took me three months to get to that point. I actually did. Now, just to add clarity to that, there were 120 phone calls that we had to make a day, mandatory minimum. And we made them from the white pages. So I called 100, in the yellow pages. So I called 120 people cold a day five days a week for 10 and a half, 11 hours a day. Yeah, for those of you listening that, that have was, that's, pages yeah. are there, those, we used to use them before Google came along. <laughs> Miles before, there was, no, there was no Google, there was no internet, there was no mobile phones. Right? This is just and like landlines. Hi, how you going? Hi, how you going? 120 times a day. I had a full script. I had a, a, a cost-benefit analysis. I had trial closes. I had so all of the stuff that I ever learned about the basis of 1970s, 80s, and 90s sales um, techniques was learned in that office, and they were ingrained and inbred. And a lot of the stuff is still um, applicable nowadays, but it's not um, it, it's not as cold as it was back then. Back then, it was very cold and cognitive, and you could pretty much teach a monkey to do it. Nowadays, it's more about mixing EQ with IQ as opposed to just having um, IQ. Yeah, but oh, I and what, that's probably... I well, think what's really important for people listening is that, um, you know, just to give people perspective on how easy it is to access information now to, you know, become somebody that works in this industry as opposed to having to lay the foundation the way you did and do it the hard way and understand you know, the, the foundation concepts of, you know, delivering it now, which is, uh, 
you know, much easier, much more accessible, you know, to go through the white pages and, you know, it's just, yeah, much easier to operate. I know that I've done a bit of sales with you and, yeah, I have found so much benefit in just a few conversations, you know. Um, so have gratitude, guys, if you're listening to the simplicity of something like the internet now where you can access these things <laughs> as opposed to Gary having to go through, you know, um, yeah, the aid is literally. It's true. You can get a lot of the info, but practice is what it's all about. The thing that um, the thing that I find really interesting nowadays, Marta, really, really interesting, is that I'd go to work and work in this office, and my boss would say to me, get on the phone and make 120 phone calls. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't even blink right because that's what you did you made 120 phone calls you just hi how you going what's the worst somebody could do hang up on you say no Mm. and i come across um small to medium businesses nowadays so people that are operating so single person services or small teams of two or new businesses that are stepping into an environment that they haven't been in before but they've got a skill or a passion that they want to take to that market and, and generate some revenue out of it and I say to them, great, guys, what are you doing to make money? Yeah, who are you ringing? Who are you telling people about? They're like, oh, no, no, I don't want to be pushy. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to be salesy. And I, don't want to be, I don't want to be the sort of person that gets in somebody else's face. I get what you're saying, but what that tends to translate to in my, through my ears and my language is I have a fear of telling other people my intention mm-hmm. and my value. Right now, if you're in business, telling one or two people your intention and your value should be a standard, a simple standard. You can just click and reel off. And if you can't do that, then instead of being able to deliver service and and, um, anything else, focus on being able to deliver your message for a start and being comfortable delivering that message. 120 cold calls a day right, at 600 calls a week and you can't tell five people how good you are mm, exactly it's so um, true i mean i've you know um, in my early days i've worked in a call center and it was 60 a day for me it was it you just did it like you said you just you just turn up and you do your thing you don't really question it um uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. With business owners these days, I find a lot of people are scared to show up and surf um, because maybe they don't have clarity in what it is that they actually do. So um, there is a huge I'll, gap. I'll, I'll, question, I'll question that slightly. Clarity in what they do, yeah. Confidence and belief in it, different mm. thing. Mm. They know how they serve but they just don't have confidence enough in themselves to be able to tell somebody that they're good enough to serve like that. Mm. If I can give one tip, imagine for a split second that you don't work for yourself, but you work for the boss that sits behind the one glass window in the office. Yeah. And when he looks up, if you're not on the phone, you're in trouble. Then you'll approach it a little bit different. Yeah, exactly. It's like I heard something the other day, you know, imagine somebody gave you $86,400 a day. Would you use that 
as um, you know, 86,400 seconds a day. Um, if somebody took that away from you, you know, would you change your perspective on how you spend it? And that was really interesting because it's exactly what you're saying now. You know, are you doing um, in alignment with what you're supposed to be doing to deliver what it is that you want to actually, you know, do to serve? And if you're not, then are you actually doing something that you're truly passionate about? And if not, um, yeah, work with somebody to find what that is. That's going to change. Like you said, it's going to evolve. You know, you weren't a spray painter for the rest of your life. You transitioned to a different career with the skills that you received in the sales training after the spray painting. I've had some, I've, I've had some, I've had some careers though, Margaret. <laughs> it wasn't, but I went into sales just to, to flash forward. I went into sales. I, I worked hard. I uh, earned the promotion instead of promotion they sidestepped me to another sales role that was still on the phone um i earned a promotion in that section and instead of sidestepping me they gave me a larger role internally they weren't going to put me on the road so after a period of time in there i left and i went back and i did manual labor i went back to spray painting and i made some more money on spray painting and then did that for a year and a half and then decided i wanted to get into sales again so i got straight back into sales and i worked as a car salesman right now, don't hold that against me. have a great reputation, don't they? <laughs> oh, God. I worked as a car salesman for three months and I could not stand the ethics in the job. I literally, I just couldn't deal with it. Couldn't deal with the management ethics. I couldn't deal with the um, dealer principal ethics. I couldn't deal with the salesman's ethics. When they were sh Some of the stuff they did to clients, I watched them scrape muck out of the roof, out of the gutter once and put it in a jar. And then this old couple came in and bought a uh, car. And while they were uh, buying the car, the sales rep with the jar full of mark came and sat down and put the jar full of mark on the desk and said to salesman number two, this is, we've had this jar outside for a year. This is what a year's worth of mark looks like. And sales two went, wow, that's fantastic. Um, good thing we've got paint protection that we can offer. And the old couple went, really, really? What's paint protection? I said, oh, $1,000 mm -hmm. will protect your paint. And like, oh, yeah, we need. So they bumped the price of the car up by a K. And that's the scams that they used to pull on people that had no idea. And I watched it. I said, that's just un unethical. Yeah. I was 30, I was 30 at the time. I said, that's just unethical. And they went, well, no, this is, that's car sales. So I said, great. Well, I'm not a car salesman. So I left. So I literally, uh, <laughs> and Grace, my darling wife, would love to, to remember this story as well. She was six months pregnant. We'd had a fairly heavy business failure that had cost us a, a house and a, a job along the way. Um, I was the breadwinner and I walked out on a job. So I was unemployed with a six-month-old, uh, sorry, uh, a wife that was six months pregnant. No sorry, we just cut out there for a moment. Expects for work tomorrow. And so I was, okay. So unemployed, wife, six months pregnant, no prospects of income, bills to be paid. Just walked out of the job because I couldn't deal with it. And when I say couldn't deal with it, couldn't deal with the ethics of it. Mm. I was unemployed for four hours. I'm not kidding. Four hours. And my network, I had the most wonderful people in my life. And a friend of mine was working for Drake um, Professional. And she mm -hmm. rang me and she said, I heard you're out of work. And I said, yeah. She goes, can you come into the office and interview? I said, sure. 
So I went into the office and interviewed a drag person. And they, um, it was an hour interview. And by the time I'd got home, I had a job. So I went to start working in sales and away we went. And I, that was a seven-year um, business cycle. I worked for a uh, construction material supplier in Australia. And I took their business from around the three-and-a-half, $4 million mark to 12 and a half bucks in two years. So uh, business growth, great fun. Yeah, for just just for people listening, now did you need any special skills or special education or you know some sort of special any of this? No, I haven't been to uni. Mind you, I am not a university degree carrier. I don't have a psych degree. I don't have a business degree. I don't have any of that that sort of stuff. I've been fortunate to be in the room and to be trained by people that carry these qualifications that are masters of these qualifications. I don't have a piece of paper. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to highlight. You know, I think a lot of people, especially younger, thinking about their careers, projecting forward, like what it is, what is that I want to be when I grow up? Um, for people listening, it's important to take that on board. You know, there's a difference between education and education. So um, you're listening to a story now of, you know, a real person who's gone literally through, you know, spray painting to style, spray painting to style, different career paths, who in my eye, I see is quite successful. You know, you have a beautiful family and you have a life that you love and, you know, you have the toys that you enjoy. And um, it's absolutely possible for anybody to do that. You do not have to go to university. And if you no. choose to do so, that's perfect too. But there are many avenues and I've seen this even in my own life, you know, I've worked in the corporate world for 20 years, didn't finish uni with the same mindset, you know, do I actually need this piece of paper to do what I need to do? And um, for me, the answer was no, but for some people it is. Um, yeah, just important with career choices if you're so, a young person. Look, it teaches, yeah, university teaches you to a degree, it teaches you how to learn. Mm -hmm. right? And if you're capable of learning, prior than being taught how to learn, well, then you're all right. But uh, don't get me wrong, paperwork is good. Getting the do, I, there are times I consider, in fact, I considered almost, uh, in, in, I'm almost thinking about heading back just to do a psych degree now. Um, mm. I, only because I just want to know what I don't know because I talk to people that have done psych degrees and it's like, yeah, I know all of that. I'm, I'm looking for more information. There's got to be more information, but it, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah. So it's just interesting. But that being said, I'm not a, a you can learn to do something or you can do something. They're your choices. And I'd rather just do something than learn to do something. Exactly. So but, that was the way it was. But yeah, look, I built a decent business for them. Um, got to a point where I was, uh, I still all right with them. Um, but more, you know, you wake up, in the morning and you always want more so i woke up one morning and i went oh more so i said um, i was in construction materials so i set up a um, construction based company and did timber floor installation and sanding um, and built that up into a cute little business of you know a few vans a few employees number of jobs and did that for three years it was great i was tool on the tools again but it was now a mix of being a business owner and a hands-on sort of thing and then kind of went nah i'm over it the reason I got over it was because the staff that I had weren't, in my mind, weren't good. 
Mm. They were causing me no end of trouble. They were hard to manage. They were costing me money. My business was going backwards because of my staff. And I got all upset with all of my staff. So I did what any wise and, and sage business owner would do. And I sacked everybody. Right? Because that's what you do when you can't manage staff. You sack people. You go back to a one-man business and then you realise that you can't do it as a one-person business and you shut the door. And that's what I did. And I went back into the corporate side of things and I sold um, uh, construction materials again, but this time road-based. So higher, higher volume uh, sales, bigger dollars, huge infrastructure projects. So East Link. Uh, Toller freeway widening, deer park bypass, all these things, you know, the, big, the big ones. Um, I did that for two years, absolutely bored. Mm. It's just, you get to a point where you can do it and it's like, eh. and it's not enough. I'm very exhilarating. <laughs> Look, I did one sale. Right? Now, just, just to give you an idea, I did one sale that exceeded the plant's capacity for three and a half months. That's right. a good, so that's a good it deal. took, yeah, but exceeded. So they then said to me, we can't take work on for nearly a year. Can you sit in the office for a year, please? Mm. Right. So, so for a year, I sat there went to work. I couldn't go and sell anything else. We didn't have anything else to sell. So I kind of sat there and went, mm, this is not. And then I, during that time, we all do self-discovery and we all do um, education model stuff and I got onto some of the Kaisaki rich dad poor dad and I got onto other bits and pieces and this crazy friend of mine said to me have you ever thought about real estate I said no he said do you want to jump into real estate and see if you can buy stuff for me I said yeah sure so the first deal I ever did in real estate I bought uh, seven units and I paid for six of them so the fifth, this, the um, seventh unit came along almost free. That was the size of the discount we got on all of the units. So I did that for this guy and got paid a little calm on the way. And it was nice. It was pretty. And then these two guys got together and I got uh, a request to go into uh, the office. And they put me in a seven series BMW and they drove me out to Essendon Airport put me in a chopper and flew me over Melbourne and they pointed to all of these places that they wanted to buy and all of these places that they owned and then they landed me back at Essendon we jumped back into the Bimmer we drove down to the old Stoke house uh, big steak meal and the boys just basically said we want to hire you what's your number so you know, not having any sense of self-value I instantly asked for a hundred thousand dollars a year in a Porsche and they signed off on it so it was cool um so I woke up the next morning. Yeah, I was in guys, that's how you negotiate. 100% posture right there. <laughs> legit. That was what I said to her. It's 100 grand a year and a phone, obviously, phone office and car, and the car's got to be a Porsche. And they went, yeah, sure. Tick. Yeah, that, so, that was from the company car you got earlier on in the first time you asked, right? <laughs> sorry, have you said, what was that? That was a bit of an upgrade from the first company car you were receiving your own. Hundred percent, bit of an upgrade, just a touch. But right, so I've been in real estate in a while ago, and I worked with them through up until the tail end of GFC. And when the GFC came through in '08, mm. um, real estate sector on a whole um, took a backflip and died. And anybody working in the real estate sector went broke. Nearly everybody. Uh, my guys went broke. 
Um, I tried to save them. I, I got them into a position where they could make some money on the way out the door. Mm. They failed to accept that position, uh, held on for a little bit too long and went under. Mm. Uh, on the back end of that, one of the directors asked me to trade him out of, um, basically out of receivership. So I did a few deals along the way and I got to a point by this stage uh, where I could, I could pretty much talk people into a few things. So we managed to talk uh, him out of receivership and he ended up not going broke. And as a result of him not going completely broke, um, he bought me my first Ducati. So um, that was the reward for the, the deal was if I could get him out of the hole, he bought me a bike. So he bought me a bike. So um, well, that's way to get you, if you want to hear about it. <laughs> well, it is. But let me just go back a few years. I, I'd been riding for years um, and Suzuki's mostly. And I told everybody that ever wanted to listen that one day I'd buy a Ducati. Now, one day I'd have a Duke in the garage. I'm a Duke rider at heart. One day, one day, one day, one day. And I just kind of got... the duck, right? <laughs> Sorry, let me say? From the jigsaw to the duck. <laughs> completely right. <laughs> so everybody, including Grace, started to get a little bit tired of hearing me say that. And Grace said to me one day, what you, if you don't stop saying that, people are going to start thinking you're an idiot. And I said, no, it'll happen. So you want to talk about manifestation? <laughs> Absolutely. He right? He offered, I accepted, 1098 in red, the actual first one in Melbourne, in my garage. It was their demo bike. So it can happen. So I went from there and, and you know, then when they went broke and I traded them out, I went and worked for some wealth creation companies. I've always been in property accumulation. So I buy for people. And that's kind of where I honed all the property side of the skills. And after three or four years there, I just decided that I could do it as well for myself as I could do for anybody else. So I went out and I started up my own buyer's advocacy and boom, I was in the market. I was a buyer's advocate and uh, the world was a beautiful place. Not. For anybody that's ever set up their own business, and I did you probably speak to a heap of people that have, Margaret, but for anybody that's ever set up their own business, you think you got it when it starts, you do okay for a while, and then it hits a hiccup or two. And unless you you have some inbuilt adaptability and an availability inside to be able to work through some of those hiccups, you go under. So I did okay for a start and then forgot to market and forgot to sell and forgot to look for new clients because I'd had a few clients on the book, so it was great. Mm. Uh, failed to do so and the business went into a lull and it went to such a lull that we were having trouble putting food on the table. So rather than shut the business down, I went to work part-time at Melbourne Airport as a, um, we'll call it a, a airside security Mm -hmm. right? But it's not. It's more escorting and making sure that people follow the rules and that they're safe, etc. So it's a safety officer. I love this story because it highlights to people that, you know, the journey of entrepreneurship and just starting your own and, you know, following your dream. Um, sometimes you do have to do things that you don't want to do, but you do what you have to do because you need to do and you have the responsibility of a beautiful wife and, you know, children coming along or present. And then, um, yeah, so for people listening, just remember that, you know, it's not going to be a smooth ride, 
Um, but it is going to be something that you can look back on and share stories like Gary's doing right now, you know, and I, every time I see you, you love what you're doing, but it does take resilience. And like you said, you know, a certain type of character to be able to handle what's coming when you do take and make this decision to do something that you love. And I can see that you're truly passionate about what you're doing. You know, I, I have fun doing what I do. Exactly. You're having a ball, you know, you're either playing golf or, you know, with a client somewhere enjoying a beautiful steak or, you know, so yeah, just for people listening, know that, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's going to be a roller coaster, but just hold on. It's worth it. Understand something too. What you see is trouble at the time. Mm. At the time, when you look back at it, it might not be the trouble that you thought it was. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with that. What you think is bad usually is going to push you um, into growth. You know, it's just like going to the gym. You it know. gives you something, Margaret. It gives you something. So I went and worked at I went and worked at the airport. Now this part time job, right? So I was going to do that part time and buyers advocacy part time. This part time job ended up evolving into a um, six day a week minimum twelve hour shift a day. So seventy two hours a week, airside. Right? That was part time. Part-time gig for 72 hours a week. That makes sense. Yeah. And I still needed to do my work. I still needed to keep the buyer's ad afloat, right? Because the whole aim of going there was to subsidise the buyer's ad so that he could grow too. Mm. So I was doing 20 hours a week on my own business and 72 hours a week on somebody else's. So I was pulling 90-hour weeks. Apparently, if you ask the kids back then about what I was like back then, I wasn't the greatest of people to be around. But mm. you do what you got to do to get what you got to get. What it taught me was uh, management, though, because I got to a point where I actually ended up running the team, Airsides, and I had to manage 70 people a day. Mm. Right? So that's start times, finish times, lunches, morning teas, fuel breaks, safety issues, all of that stuff every day for 70 people. Right? So when I was running my floor seating business and I couldn't manage six people or five, people and I threw my hand business down here I was 10 years later 15 years later running 70 people without breaking a sweat I really wished I'd known back then what I'd learned then but it was cool so now I know how to manage right awesome so there's the skill that I never thought I was going to get but I was given based on the hardship that popped up. You don't just tend to so do that, talk. you know. It tends to give you what you need, not what you want at the time. So in hindsight, you know, it's exactly. like, no, he's much better than this. We're just going to put him through a bit of a process. And, you know, a few years later, we'll just give him, you know, times <laughs> 10x <Well>, and beyond. <laughs> but that's the truth of it. You just, you don't, you don't know. And anyway, epiphanies. I'm pulling 90 hours a week. I'm killing myself. I'm sitting at the airport. It's a Thursday afternoon. Sun's going. The airport has the best sunrises and sunsets, guys. I'll tell you straight out. If any of you want to see a sunrise and a sunset, go to the airport. Like, let's sit on the airport. It's just, it's one of the highest points. It's Melbourne. And you just see, well, there's no light left in the sky. It's gorgeous. Sitting on one of the, the um, parking base, it's actually one of the golf bays. So it sits in between um, Alpha and Sierra on um, Melbourne Airport. And I was just staring off into the sunset and I'm thinking to myself, I'm tired. 
I'm super tired. But you'd be tired because you're working 90 hours a week. Mm. And a thought crossed my mind, literally just flashed. And it was just imagine I worked 90 hours a week on my own business, how successful it would be rather than work 70 hours for one person and 20 hours for me. Imagine if I just put the whole 90 hours into my business. How successful would I be? And that's when I realized that the reason I was at the airport was because I'd stopped working for me. I was looking for a, an easier way. But as soon as I was responsible for somebody else, somebody else's business, somebody else's dream, I put the effort in. So that little epiphany designing the next morning, literally walked in and just said, guys, done. Thank you very much. I'm out of here. And um, every time I get tired now moving forward, when I'm working, if I'm working long hours or whatever, I ask myself a very simple question. It's the question that I kind of posed myself while I was sitting on that golf bay. And it was simply this, would you rather be tired or would you rather mm. be hungry? Any day of the week, I'd rather be tired. Yeah, 100%. So if every... 100%. So that's kind of where it sits. Exactly. You know, I've had people ask that question to me. Now, how do you get so much done within your day? And I do remember the early days of migrating to Australia where we were so poor that I still remember the table that my parents had. You know, you literally had to fold out the legs. And what was served on there some days was literally rice with a can of sardines. So, you know, some people are like, how do you find the energy to like, you know, follow your passion, do the development, get to the training, socialize, connect with people, do everything that you do. And I just say to them, I remember what it was like to be hungry going to school as a kid. And this is fun. That wasn't. Yeah. But this is true. <laughs> this is This is fun. But you, it's, it's also because you've got something to run it up against, Maggie. Yeah. When you look back at the hard stuff that you've done and you, you, you know that this is easy. When I say it's easy, it's not easy, it's fun. Right? Mm -hmm. you, enjoy doing, you enjoy doing what you're doing. I get to choose what I do. And, it, you yeah. know, you, you hit it on the head right there. Having gone through, um, you know, the darkness, I now appreciate the light. I've seen what it... You know, I don't like to say good and bad because I don't really think there's anything good and bad. I think everything is just a lesson. Um, it's just a different perspective of that situation depending on which side of the fence you're sitting on. But absolutely, it's like someone who's, um, you know, experienced love for the first time and fallen really deep in love. Maybe they've experienced really deep hate before. That's the only way they can, you know, come up with the contrast and really feel it and understand it. But yeah, you know, it's so true. There's nothing more motivating. Um, and, you know, some of the mentors that, you know, we both, um, you know, look up to have been through that journey too. You've got to go through the hardship sometimes to appreciate and have complete gratitude for where you are right here, right now. Yeah. But the hardships are expected. Well, no, we never expect them, right? It's when you get to a point in your life where you can accept them happily because you believe enough in yourself that you have the skill set to get through them, that life turns good. Yeah. And, and you well, mentioned it earlier. There is no one path. Your path is based on, you know, 
your decision at the time. I think one of the things that I do love about you is that you're a very quick decision maker. You know, who goes to work, watches the sunrises and, and decides the next day that oh, that's it, I'm done. I'm now going to be working on my business, not distributing my time over 90 hours and killing myself doing that, you know. Um, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned as well is exactly that. Become a good decision maker because it doesn't matter which way you go. If you make one, then you learn quickly. No, no such thing as failure, only feedback, right? So you can't fail because you're still breathing. You're still here. You've still got the opportunity to redeem and learn and, you know, take steps to, in the other direction if it's something that you've tried that hasn't worked out for you. And that's okay. It's part of the human trial. Um, I'll put a twist on that. Not a twist. I'll, put, I'll just put a little caveat on that. Um, in the world that we operate in, once you've done enough time in it you start to realize that yes there is no such thing as failure and that there is only learning and then there's all that sort of stuff but when you're when you get kicked in the guts it doesn't feel like a lesson no uh, it just feels like a boot in the guts it does right? and, it, and it hurts like hell and you sit there and you might and, and you might for a bit right um because every time you lose you it's something that you had that you no longer do have right i'll just say this once you get to a point where you realize that you can afford to lose everything because you've made it once before you can make it again, mm. then the loss, the loss isn't as scary as it once was. Mm. Right? And as soon as you're not scared of the loss, you're unstoppable. 100%. But it's, a, it's about getting to that point. That's right. And I think I've had this conversation with you even about writing. You know, we share a mutual love for motorbikes and we were talking about Siberia once, but, you know, you've told me a few stories about where when you're on the bike, you're at one, you know, and it's um, it's a very fun line between am I really going to totally surrender to this corner? And that's <laughs> what life is about, isn't it? It's really about going all out, all in and having full trust within yourself that no matter what decision you make, the direction you're taking is absolutely perfect for you. Motorcycling is is the um, best metaphor for life. Right? The only way to survive on a bike, if you're going to race it in the track, the only way to survive on a bike is to ensure that your grip on the bars is light, right? so that you're not choking it. There's no input into the bars that you don't need to put that upsets the bike. They've got to be light. You've got to ensure that you're looking exactly where you want to go and not looking at the things that scare you. So the barrier on the outside, the kitty litter, it's, if you're looking at that, that's where you're going to go. If you mm -hmm. want to go through the corner, you've got to look through the corner. And you've got to commit and apply throttle the second you're in that corner or tip in. So you can't go in half-heartedly and hope. You've got to go in full throttle and open. So unless you're relaxed, unless you're looking where you're going, unless you're opening the throttle, you're going to crash. Same thing in life. Don't look at what can go wrong. Don't hold on so tightly that you can't steer. Mm. And don't go in half-heartedly, full throttle. But that's, you know, we've had that discussion before. That's motorcycling or life, your call. Yeah, and I totally resonate with that because, yeah, in order to um, 
in order to have control, you actually actually have to completely let go of what you thought was, you know, and just allow to be, allow what is to simply be. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting metaphor. For those of you that don't ride motorcycles, um, I don't know, <laughs> maybe start. It's good yeah, the, the, the easiest way to understand life is to go and get a motorcycle license. Everything else sorts out from there. But safety for us, you know, I've done it. I love it. It's so much fun. But um, yeah, well, I love yeah, it. You look at me. I'm, I'm in for all the safe stuff. So motorcycling, car racing, flying, but, you know, all that stuff's safe. Sort of. What I love about you, Gary, is that although you love to, you know, this is your passion, you know, being a biodiver, it's something that you do, but, you know, you also have a quite a diverse range of um, other activities that, well, this is why we do life, isn't it? You know, we know we're starting, we know we're ending, but in between we're having a ball. So what else do you do, you know, to, um, you know, keep you young at heart? <laughs> <laughs> wow, good question. Um, <laughs> Yeah, look, the reality is there's not much that I haven't done. I'm probably going, if I'm to be brutally honest, I'm going through a quiet patch at the moment. Mm. No? Yeah. So I'm not, I haven't done any, I thought the other day about running a marathon just for something to do. I don't run, um, but I don't think I'll go there. Uh, I might do around the bay, do a nice 250k ride on the bike because I'm riding the pushies nowadays because they're fun. Um, I'm competing in a CrossFit tournament in three weeks' time. Um, yeah, I just do all sorts of stuff that keeps me. Having said all of that, right? Look, all of that aside, I I enjoy what I do so much that I like just doing it. You've yeah. got to understand something, Margaret. I, I when I'm asked what I do, right? So for those of you that, that aren't quite unfair, what an buyer's advocate is, um, when you get to a point where you can't buy your home or your investment property because the market's out of control or um, because you don't know enough or because you keep being embedded in an auction. I'm the guy that you call because I'm the guy that will get it done in six to eight weeks. Right? Mm. Using the exact same amount of money that you had, using the exact same amount of the, the exact same brief that you had, um, operating the exact same market, I'll be able to close deals that you never could. And it's only because I've been in the market long enough that I understand how the animal runs. And I, I also have really great connections and an ability to do deals. Yeah, it's an it's such so, a valuable it's service. Sort of it does, but I'll find you what you want. Where... Sorry, uh, the internet. So it's about finding what you want, where you want for what you want to spend. That's cool. So it's about finding what you want, where you want for what you want to spend. So that's the that's the theory behind it. All right. Here's how I see what I do. I get to spend millions of dollars of other people's money every week. Mm. All right. And I get to go to the best homes and I get to buy the best, amazing places. And after I spend millions of dollars of other people's money, they cheer me on, send me references of joy, pay me cash and buy me bottles of scotch. Why wouldn't I want to do that all day? So why would anybody want to be a buyer's advocate? Right. I get to meet wonderful people. <laughs> I yeah, I know it's a struggle, isn't it? I mean, I drink the best scotch, I smoke the best Cuban cigars, I go to the best places, you know, I have great networks, good people in my life. I mean, Margie, you've seen the toys I play with. They're not my toys, right? I drive 
Lambos and Mazas and all sorts of stuff. And they're not mine. Right? They're just friends that have done well during property that I've managed to buy stuff for. And like, yeah, I drive my car, play with my plane. Sure. Right? It's a good lie. Right? But it's serious business, but it's a good life. So in terms of what else do I do to have fun? There's nothing more fun than closing a big deal. Nothing. Nothing in this world brings you high as much as getting something, especially an auction. You know, I spent two and a half mil last week, the week before. 2.55, I'm being specific. In a market where everything sells three or $400,000 over, mm-hmm. we spent 2.55 on a place that had a reserve at 2.6. That's good. Well, you know, more than good. Under. <laughs> yeah. But 50 grand and under, right? Do you know how wonderful it was to do that at auction in a street, in an environment where the people we beat then offered the 50 grand after we'd gone inside, only to be told, sorry, the deal was already done. Yeah. Right, we smashed them. But that's that's what I do for fun. So I sure I fly and I ride and I drive and do all sorts of stuff as well and drink and, and party and play poker and you know, just all standard relaxing things like most people would do in this world. Mm. But this is what I'm talking but, about. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's um for people listening, you can have an absolute ball if you have a career. I don't even want to call it a career. If you have a lifestyle where you're constantly every day doing exactly what it is that you love and actually, you know, you, you can have it all. Like, you know, and some people don't need to go out and, you know, do a million other things to distract themselves because, I mean, to be completely honest, I did that, you know, I ran away to like 10 countries because I just wasn't sure with where I wanted to go in life and I wasn't happy with what I was doing. But yeah you know listening to your stories like you don't even need to go um you know race educate at the grand prix track in philip island you know because every single day you wake up your feet hit the ground and you know you know that you're serving people and helping them achieve what they want you know something that yeah they don't have time to do or they're not skilled enough to do or they just don't want to and that's fine and if you find love within that then i hope everybody finds something like that within their life so that they can wake up and you know realize like I found what I love to do maybe this is my purpose for life maybe it's for the next 10 years but you know you never question doing that because it's 1000% your passion and that's beautiful you know given that you've never finished uni you started off as a panel beater you had really had not real clear direction of where you wanted to go but you've managed to build a lifestyle that you love and isn't that the dream within you know the start and finish line to just be on this journey that you absolutely wake up and go, I'm kicking ass today. This is awesome. You know, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, 100% right. The aim is to look back when they put you in the deck, in the ground, and go, Yeah, I lived the life that I was given. Uh, if you haven't, I, I, I can offer you nothing. Mm-hmm. Pure and no simple. You, you get it? <laughs> One, you get one shot and you're, you're going to snuff them, but happiness and joy, joy. Uh, I've screwed it up. I, I mean, I've hit a couple of parked cars and ended up in hospital off the bikes. And I tore Peck Major a couple of years ago in a um, training accident. I've got titanium buttons and cables in my arm now, pulling the, the chest muscle back into place. And, um, you know, I've got meniscal damage in both knees from um, riding 
excessively. Uh, the left eye's got a small hole in it somewhere from uh, same sort of thing. And you know, I'm on my back. I uh, hit a tree in a forest. Um, went over the side of the cliff in Marysville and ended up um, breaking a small section of my back and a few ribs. Um, so you're gonna get it wrong, yeah, along the way. Well, them battle so scars. long as you don't die, everything else is good. Look, huh? if you get to the battle end scars. of mine and you have some battle scars to stay, you know, I literally skidded sideways as fast as I could, but I loved every moment. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Yeah, but that's what it's all about. I'll tell you a um, story, truth. Uh, I did a strongman comp a few years ago. And this is this is metaphor for life for me, right? I did a strongman comp a few years ago. And I, I'm not a strongman. I'm strong, but I'm not a strongman, strongman. Right? These guys are mammoths. And one of the things they got you to do was a yoke, which is like a big saddle bar that goes across your shoulders. And I had to walk 20 meters with 295 kilos on this bar. Uh, so it's quite oh heavy. Um, so I walked the first 10 metres, put the, yeah, well, I walked the first 10 metres, put the bar down, turned around, picked it up and walked the next 10 metres back. And as I got the last three or four metres, I could see stars and I was going to black out and all this sort of stuff. And I managed to make it, down goes this thing and I fell. But I fell into the arms of one of these strong men, strong men, Damien's his name, wonderful. You got This guy's just got a heart of gold. I mean, he's a beast of a man, right? but he's a brilliant person. Um, fell into his arms and he kind of picked me up like I was nothing. And stands me up and I'm like, oh, geez, it's starting to clear. Because you're right. I go, mate, that, that was almost, that was impossible. I can't believe I did it. It's just like, ah, oh. he goes, how do you feel? I go, I feel destroyed. My back sore, my kidney. He goes, but did you die? And I said, no. He goes, that was a good day. And that stuck with me. Um, mm. Every time something goes wrong, a simple question I ask myself is, but did you die? And if the answer is no, just doesn't get any better than that. Favorite memes, you know, but did you die? (laughs) But did you die? Right? It's legit. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I love that you found pleasure within the that's 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 the Oh, there was no pleasure. It was nice. Who were thinking about lifting 290 in crazy cut? Yeah, no, it was it was horrible. It was a big day out, but um, I did it. So you know, and you do what you got to do. I mean, I've got uh, you know, I enjoy my exercise. I've got uh, boxing trophies and and powerlifting medals and um, CrossFit comp awards and all crap. Push, find out where the limit is. Sometimes cross the limit. Sometimes, right? But push. That's yeah, what life's about. Totally agree. You know, find what it is, whatever it is that lights you up, and just push that button, and then push it again, and then keep pushing it. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you all the way. <laughs> there you go. Well, Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, you know, getting to know you, and I guess I have one last question. If it was your last day on earth today, what would your message be to the world? My message? Mm-hmm. Go hard. <laughs> Do it all. Uh, if there's something that sits on your mind that you've ever wondered about, you're not going to get another chance. Mm. Uh, now, I totally agree. That's, that's just it. That's just it. And I mean, 
don't bet the farm on it. Uh, so don't jump off the side of a building and, and wonder whether or not you can fly. You can't. But if there's something that sits in the back of your mind that you've always wondered about, go. Mm -hmm. Don't don't think. Don't contemplate. You never know. That's it, guys. You've heard it here. Make that executive decision and go hard. Whatever it is that's, you know, tickling you, um, yeah, fulfill that. Do it. Go for it. And um, here is Gary, a walking, living, breathing example of what it is that, you know, you can build for yourself if you just have the courage to go and do that. You know, his crushed courage journey is amazing. I, I'm just starting to follow and there's so much more coming, you know, the next 50 and beyond. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who have tuned in that want to connect with you. So if they do have something that they want to talk to you about, like how the how do you live 290 or, you know, how do I get on that bike or, you know, I want to buy my first home or, you know, or maybe they want some sales training or anything that they've connected or resonated with you about, how can they reach you? Where can they find you? Facebook's probably the best place. Um, I'm, I tend to be all over that. So send me a friend request. I'm one of your friends. So if they know you, they'll know me. Um, it, email is the other way. I take emails. You know, so if, if you wanted to just click me an email, it's Gary, G-A-R-R-Y, and McPherson, N-C, B-H-E-R-S-O-N, property.com.au. Um, or Insta, I'm on the, as the property buyer, the supply, surprise. Um, DMs, message, carry pigeon, stop me on the street, throw something at me. Um, keep up with me if you can. Um, uh, but looks like the internet gods are having fun with us now. Yeah, they're playing Scrabble with the internet, it's just cool. They, they're really good at this lately, so. <laughs> Anyway, for anyone that wants to reach out to Gary, uh, there are the options. Otherwise, you can, by all means, contact me and I'll connect you guys. That's perfect as well. And, um, yeah, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I can't wait to hang out in person again now that we can. And until next time, guys, yeah. do you have anything else to share, Gary? No, that'll do. I think I've shared it. <laughs> that'll do for now. We know all about you. <laughs> Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning into this episode of Emerge From Your Box podcast. I would love to hear from you. We would love to hear from you. So until the next episode, reach out and take care of yourself.